0: Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Four, three, two, one. I told you before to be careful where you put your legs.
1: I was only trying to be helpful. I can help myself.
0: What are you waiting for? Come on. Come on. What are you waiting for? Come on.
1: Come on. For seven decades, Michael Caine has been among the world's most renowned and recognisable actors. It was just what I needed. A one-inch god with a two-inch penis. The star of classics like Zulu, The Man Who Would Be King and The Cider House Rules. It's a miracle
0: no one was killed.
1: But also films that brought his career to the brink of complete implosion.
0: I made a mistake.
1: Somehow, he has always found a way back.
0: You're a big man, but you're in bad shape. But
1: then a full-time job. In this epic podcast series, we will watch and review every Michael Kane movie. From the greatest hits,
0: You're only to, blow the doors off.
1: to the incredible misses. You failed to maintain your weapon, son. And take a deep dive into the life and work of one of the world's most recognizable film stars. His
0: name is Michael Kane and no one will forget his
1: name. To understand how he is made. The Mark of Cain. Well, you all settled in? Right, we can begin. For God's sake, come in! Hello and welcome to The Mark of Cain, our continuing journey through the uplands and the lowlands of the career of Michael Cain. This is Michael Foley here, and I'm joined, as always, by Stephen Black from The Mallow News. How are you doing? Great. Good, good. That's a good, solid grand. That's a nice way to start... Um, but I do need to ask you how you've been since *Hurry Sundown*. If people, if, if people didn't hear the last episode, *Hurry Sundown* has been the first, let's just say, troubling movie that we've come across in the career of Kane. Uh, it's been—I found this I've had a few kind of flashbacks of Burgess Meredith screaming racist epithets in my ear during the night, woken up and sort of in a deep, south midsummer cold sweat.
2: Yeah, to be honest with you, it's like one of those disturbing life moments that you just want to move on from. Like I don't know, doing the leaving sort or losing your virginity.
1: <laughs> well, we can move on today. I think we both, but I was certainly looking forward to getting away from hurry Sundown and going back to the calm, safe waters of Harry Palmer and the third instalment, which is, of course, Billion Dollar Brain. <laughs>
0: Saw him Ipcrest in London, almost buried in Berlin. Where are you going now? Helsinki. Now, Harry goes to Helsinki. Temperature. Ice cold. Prospects. Red hot. Mission. Destroy the brain before the brain destroys the world.
2: Terrible title. Terrible title. It sounds like a sequel to a uh, to, uh, Kurt Russell Disney movie, you know, the, the sequel
1: to The Computer <laughs> War, Ten Issues. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it is. It is a bad title. It is accurate. Um, well, although it's accurate, we're, we never actually get the price of how much the brain costs. Yes, you do. He says. Of, or does he? It, co-
2: it costs a billion dollars.
1: <laughs> I must or, have no, been. Thank you. I must have been on my I must have been on my phone. The billion dollar brain, of course, it's the supercomputer at the center of all this thing. Um I'll just say it's a third installment of Harry Palmer. Generally considered, I would say, Stephen, to be the weakest by most critics. Um I'm not sure I'm not sure where, but it probably is like, but um I don't know. We'll get into it. It wasn't too bad. I I I I, I wasn't I wasn't upset at the end of it anyway.
2: Yeah, I mean totally it's all over the place, but there are things to like about it. Uh it's yeah. definitely the weak it's definitely the weakest of the three.
1: Yeah. Yeah, it is. And it kind of it does feel like the end of the road for the inverted Commas franchise at the time. I mean,
2: yeah, yeah, I mean it's important to say that this is basically the death knell for the for the series until the nineties where there were two direct T V movies. Um they oh kind of kinda of fill that out, but we you know, that's that's maybe. Uh, that's definitely a conversation, obviously, for another day. But certainly not something we need to worry about now. I think, you no know, kind of focus, yes. not to get distracted by potential further bumps in the road.
1: Yes, yes, we've 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 hit a bad pothole last episode. The, the road is starting to settle down. Let's just let's just ease through billion dollar brain and enjoy it for what it is. So, where is Harry at? Harry is now having been a course an MI5 operative, a reluctant MI5 operative. He's now struck out on his own. He's now a small business owner. He's a private investigator.
2: Yes, he's a private investigator. Uh, we uh, we'll catch up with Harry very quickly. He's living above a, a shop in, uh, I, I assume, the the, the East End, uh, where he's playing trade as a, a private investigator. As uh, so The movie opens with somebody breaking into his office and uh, rifling through his things. And you kind of get mm. to see how far Harry has fallen since the first movie. So, of course, in the first movie, Harry is this kind of suave, sophisticated, uh, urbane gourmand, uh, lives in a nice bachelor pad with all the mod cons, uh, Dolly Bird either entering or exiting the flat. Uh, this, in, in this instance, he's basically living in, living in his office. I don't know how that works because the bed is actually literally in his office.
1: It's weird. It's weird. It's like this kind of, it's, you know, it's one of these kind of classic film noir private eye offices that you walk into. And, you know, there's like a glamour girl pin up on the wall. Picture Humphrey Bogart, presumably a nod there from Kane. Of course, Humphrey being his favourite actor. But like, you know, there's cornflakes involved. It gets very mundane very fast.
2: There's lots of cornflakes everywhere. Lots like, of
1: cornflakes, yeah.
2: And as well, you know, you know, you're in a Ken Russell movie because I think within 30 seconds you see tits.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, man. Yes there's chests everywhere. Like, I mean, there, and even the vague, and even the mildest sort of kind of suggestion that things are about to get a bit racy, Ken throws in and all, you know, either a piece of classic art, a bit of, you know, a bit of ancient world n- nudity, or, yeah, a pin-up or something. It's fucking again, again, not subtle, like.
2: Yeah, Ken, tits are my thing, Russell. <laughs>
1: Yeah, that's a hell of a way to describe the career of, like, you know, one of one of film's great independent minds, right? There isn't it? It's a bit Uh, harsh,
2: often referred to as an enfanterie, which I think is French for a giant baby.
1: (laughs) Yeah, it's it's an interesting. We look, we get on to Ken Russell. Let's just like very quickly the plot because, again. To quote my old friends at the New York Times about funeral in Berlin being plotsy, this is this is just nuts. This is just double crossing. Just what's just what's just, just
2: to clarify for listeners, these are these are people whose work you read rather than people you have in a WhatsApp group.
1: Yes, exactly. Yes, very important distinction. So Harry, private investigator, gets delivered this mysterious package, which is a flask, uh, and gets told, Take that to Finland, meet a fella, like, give him the flask. Of course he checks what's in the flask. It's like Six eggs injected with a virus. He goes to uh, Helsinki, meets his old buddy Carl Malden, of course, on the waterfront streets of San Francisco. Carl Malden, he's um, working or, or uh, affiliated to an anti-communist cult called the Crusade for Freedom. Their leader is a complete maniac, uh, frothing fascist, uh, played by Ed Begley. Uh, he's got the he's got the, the logo. He's got the Kool Aid soaked angry mob. Uh, he's got the burning torch lit sort of gatherings. He's got it all going on. And he's got a supercomputer that generates data and policy that is all directed towards destroying world communism. In this case, it's going to start an uprising in Latvia and germ warfare in Russia. So that's basically what's going on. Um, there's a load of double crossing, triple crossing. At one point, I counted that Harry was basically working but for about four different agencies at one time. So he's working for himself. He's working for MI5, he's working for the Russians, and he's working for the Crusade for Freedom. Insofar as everybody sees Harry, they think he's working for them. So it's a, just a whole thing. It's just a bit of a mess. In the end of it all, um, he actually gets double-crossed himself in the end of it. Uh, the plot ends up, of course, getting foiled. A big, massive army falls into an ice lake and the Russians actually come out as kind of the heroes for stopping what would have inevitably been a huge global conflict that ended up with everybody scratching themselves due to German warfare and dying a horrible, horrible death. That's pretty much it, isn't it?
2: Yeah, it is pretty much it. That's it, in a nutshell. Again, with, good, uh, with the emphasis on a, a bunch of very confusing double, triple crosses, criss-crosses, gonna-make-you-jump crosses, it's... <laughs> Very very confusing, and not very confusing from the point of view as well, this is so Byzantine, I can't actually figure out what's going on. To... It's just going, we're not going to actually do the groundwork of making any of this make sense. Just roll with it.
1: Exactly. It's not that it's a complicated movie to watch. It's just when you, again, yet again, as we found know with these three Harry Palmer movies, when you have to start explaining them to someone. Like if you went to the cinema and saw Billion Dollar Brain and went to the pub and met someone else. So what's that about? You'd be there for an hour. If you actually try to explain it, rather than just going, ah, look, I'll tell you what it is. It's just an awful lot of people overacting, and Kane basically cruising around them, kind of slaloming through it all, kind of raising his eyebrow, couple of smart arse remarks in his his natural Cockney accent, which was so wonderful to hear after the horror again of the Deep South accent and Horry Sundown, um, just doing his thing. He's fine in it, like, but like the movie is the movie is all over the shop. I I
2: I would be tempted to suggest that maybe he spent an awful lot of this movie drunk. I think he smiles more in this movie than any other movie that he's made. He just seems to go, Yeah, I just cameras rolling, whatever, you're saying a line, I'm reacting to it. Let's get this done. I've got to piss off to Paris and move Charlie McLean while staying in a five star hotel. So this is yeah. hell for me.
1: That's right. It is it gets to the point like where like it's all shot most of it's shot in Finland. And it's clearly and I and I'm obviously Baltic, but Baltic cold. I, I did read somewhere where there was a scene where Kane was to jump into freezing ice cold water. And just, in a kind of a portent of things to come in his later years, he just went, No, I'm not doing that. And you know what? He was dead right. You know, there's no need to be jumping into icy water. It was, it looks, it just, you know, a lot of parts of this film are just, he's just getting through it. But he's getting through it in a sort of a relaxed sort of way. You know, it's like, Yeah, Harry Palmer. It's this is a thing I do, you know. I'm Harry Palmer. Yeah. Again, it's
2: perfectly fine. Mm. No, nothing remarkable about it uh from, from, from a performance perspective, except that he does smile a hell of a lot more. He appears to be enjoying himself as Harry Palmer on screen, even if the, the record the, the, the movie making process itself wasn't that enjoyable.
1: No. I you had an interesting point about the credits. I quite like the credits. They're to me, they remind me a bit of the man from Uncle or something.
2: In the same way, the last movie had bo- strong Bond connections with Guy Hamilton directing it. This in this movie, the credits are done by Morris or Maurice Binder, who was responsible for doing the majority of all the early '60s Bond movies. He did okay. the credits for all of those, so you expect right. a really high standard. But this I kind thought of was really substandard Bond, really mm-hmm. kind of confessions of a window cleaner kind of. Pictures of of Kane, you know, like uh, peering over some dolly bird's shoulder, uh, yeah. while somebody very inefficiently uh, pretends to press buttons on a on the supercomputer.
1: I tell you what, it reminded me of. It reminded me of something you'd see on TV. It was like the opening credits for a TV show.
2: Yeah, and- it wasn't of a movie standard. It Was like yeah, it was no. TV. And I wonder, is it Ken Russell's TV roots showing that he couldn't totally. really have the noose to actually talk to Binder, or get him to you know present something. And not phone something in.
1: I think that's the fundamental thing with this movie is that Ken Russell, as you say, had more of a TV background. He was he obviously already had a fine reputation in 1967. He did this. He did Billion Dollar Brain. Like Billion Dollar Brain, I suppose in modern terms would have been a, like a blockbuster. You know, it was a big name, big franchise. He was doing it so he could kind of raise money, or, or not so much raise money, but get the get the nod to do things he wanted to do. And it kind of comes across. I saw a very interesting review. Somewhere where it was described that Russell Russell had a way in this of making big, potentially epic things look small on screen, which I think is absolutely right. Uh, you see it in various different ones. He uses a lot of handheld camera. It's a lot of actors, very sixties, you know, and it's good. Like it's good. It's it's it works on the small screen. I'd say it was a headwrecker watching on a big screen, all this handheld stuff. But um, he definitely, it's again, it's Kane picking good a project with good people in it, but they don't gel at all, really, don't they not? It's just it just doesn't click.
2: No, I think he Kate acknowledged as well he liked Ken Russell and got on with Ken Russell, um more afterwards than during the film that it wasn't what he wasn't the right guy for the job think like at this day and age you see an awful lot of art house directors making the transition from independent movies to marvel have a good track record of this now so you, uh, they get good independent movie directors but yeah. they bring them in and they basically they have this whole framework so they yes. don't make clunkers as such they have this whole framework going you know you have to conform to and you have to work within the the limitations of our enterprise in order to make the movie whereas yeah. with ken russell i think it was given more free reign here yeah, and it shows on the screen. There are lots. Of, there's like some really interesting imagery being used here. Mm-hmm. Also, an awful lot of really confusing edits as well. There's yeah the one that's the one where uh, Harry is uh, is making a phone call to book a room in a, a room in a hotel. And it, next it cuts to him. You'd imagine the next scene Harry at the hotel. It's all set up to that. But next he cuts to him going through a phone book trying to figure out where where uh, Doctor now lives. Uh, this is a scene obviously before he goes off and finds uh, his yeah. first dead body. The, the movie again, yeah. a man in the nip uh, with a mysterious. <laughs> a man in the nip surrounded by titty wallpaper right. titty, by funny. the way titty, titty wallpaper would be a tremendous bond girl name <laughs> oh, a,
1: oh, <laughs> oh my god it's the one it's the bond movie it's a, it's the bond movie that should have been made 40 years ago with titty wallpaper in it
0: she's francoise Dorliac, and she knows just what she's about who ordered you to kill me? I had to do it. I did an order from the brain. Get up. No! The brain thinks better. The brain talks better. This is where the billion-dollar brain lives. Where the people who feed it play. Where the man who pays for its keep rules.
1: There are some baffling... As you said, there are some lovely things, but there are some baffling things. But, you know, there's even some very basic things. For example, it leapt out at me. There's a scene where he goes into a sauna. Now, he's wearing furs and the big hat, the big woolly hat and the whole thing. He goes into the sauna and he's not even sweating inside the sauna. Um, like, there's there's a, there's also another scene that should be really disturbing, right? It's like he Harry wakes up in a bath. But the bath is full of dead bodies, people that he was working with just in the previous scene or he was operating with. But he wakes up in this bath of dead bodies and he pulls himself out of it and kind of gets out and kind of dusts himself down, fixes his hair and kind of just kind of... a Russian officer comes in and he prepares himself to have a fight with him. But the Russian officer takes off his jacket. So Harry's getting ready. The Russian officer goes in and has a shower and he kind of just walks out of the shower block. And you're kind of going, um, could we not have kind of just taken... Yeah, you know, could we could we could we not have taken a few seconds just to realize what just happened here? Well, or goes use about, like, this later.
2: It's this it, again. It's the bizarre shifts in tone all over the place. There, it's a, yeah. You, he wakes up in a bath of dead bodies, like the worst stag on record. <laughs> gets a, gets out. There's kind of this bizarre slapstick piece where you think that the Russian Russian guard is going to start, you know, torturing him, and then these two mm-hmm. Russian heavies come in and grab him, and again, you think, oh, okay. He's going to get the crap beaten out of him here. But then they proceed to basically give him a spit clean to make sure that he's all dolled up before he leaves.
1: <laughs> they very gently, carefully dab his forehead in a very yeah, motherly the humor, way.
2: The humour in here is very carry-on spying, you know. There's, again, which kind of take... Like, I don't mind it that much, but yeah. it just really... It doesn't suit it doesn't sit with the overall tone of the film.
1: I think the problem with the Harry Palmer franchises, and again, Kane is not to blame necessarily for this, although... By the time we get to the third one, you would have thought he may have been able to pipe up. I think the problem is that, like you said there about the Marvel concept, right? There's a structure, there's a framework you go in, and there's a there's a set kind of way of doing it. With Harry, there was never a set way. So, like, I mean, he starts in the first episode, or the first installment, the Ipcris file, as you mentioned earlier. A guy with really fancy kettles and pots and a real gourmand. By the end of it, all of that's gone. Um, and it's kind of like... I don't I even know what he is by the end of it. You know, it's completely different, different directors, different sort of ways of doing it. You can kind of see why the whole thing fell apart, really.
2: Yeah, I mean, the Bond, again, would would have always had the Guardians of Cub, Cubby, uh, Cubby, Cubby Walkaway. Mm-hmm. Oh, sorry, it's was a, good, a terrible speech impediment there. Sorry. Cubby Broccoli would have basically ruled those movies with an iron fist in terms of what you can and what you can't do. This is what Bond is, this is what Bond isn't. Harry Palmer was basically, you know... Get these movies out as quick as possible. I think three movies in the space of two to three years. Yeah. Not much care given for you know, like the character's growth or a character arc or anything like that. Yeah. Actually, an awful lot like the recent Star Wars prequels as well. It's kind of going different director in each one. Uh, no overarching linking theme between the three of them.
1: Yeah, just bash him out, bash him out because he's popular. And let's 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 just do it. Um, what did you make of the computer? I think one of the one of the
2: most confusing points of this: if you took the computer out of this movie it would make absolutely no difference to the plot as far as, like, the computer basically makes the occasional phone call um, to operatives to give them instructions. But all the data that it's given is given to them by people. Just to put it into context, this is 1967, and I think one of the reasons why it may have put people off watching, is like, it would have been so fantastical to anyone that computers, which at that time were primarily used for, you know, basic calculations, uh, um, would be in a position to be so powerful that they would be able to orchestrate let's be honest, one of the worst invasions <laughs> in, in, in history. <laughs> yeah. so, so if there's all this, again, all of this would be very high tech at the time in terms of what they were trying to convince people that, you know, a computer could do this. It was a bit probably too too far-fetched in terms of getting audience, uh, you know, in terms of suspending an audience's uh, uh, mm. level of disbelief. Uh, so uh, again, you could take that out and you'd still have the same, you know, it would make no overarching difference to the plot, except you'd have to explain billion-dollar brain for, you know, it's a terrible title anyway. So, it's a
1: terrible. You could, if you lost a computer, you could lose a title win win.
2: Yeah. No, obviously, computers brought people to the moon, but all the, they were fed data, you know, primarily uh, draft, drafted, calculated uh, by human beings. Like, so uh, they were read online basically your average Furby has more computational power than anything produced in the 60s. Get out, Tom. And uh, as well, I mean, if you look at the whole, like, the whole. Part of the plot where Carol Malden is trying to change, you know, change records or alter records in the computer is yeah. just like the amount of knowledge that you'd have to have about a computer and how a computer works in order for Carol Malden's character to go in and make all those it would have been just absolutely ridiculous. It's just that. I'm like a nerd, but I mean, the amount of knowledge, computer knowledge that he'd have to have to go and do that would be basically, he wouldn't have enough time to spend, uh, you know, to spend riding all around Finland with his missus, you know?
1: Yeah, exactly. I mean, he'd want to be basically the kind of, you know, the Alan Turing of his day. Like, and of course, you know, yeah. it is that classic late 60s computer that, like, takes up 20 warehouses, um, and, you know, Ed Begley is, as we said, the, this kind of maniac uh, leader, kind of ranting around the place, Um but, you know, grim grim enough to say that, you know, uh, in the intervening years, I'd say the the Ed Begley character probably lost its sort of relevance to any era. But it kind of did have a little bit of a, there was a resonance when you're watching it in 2021, I, I thought, anyway.
2: Oh, yeah, you some, some some big white guy frotting at the mouth about um, communists and the... the the danger to America's sovereignty or the world's uh, sovereignty, I guess, from the Red Menace. I mean, it's all, it really look like a, an Infowars foghorn leghorn.
1: <laughs> yeah, that was pretty much it, yeah.
2: <laughs> and this yeah. speech, the speech he gives about love. You don't know no. what love is. Let me tell you about my love. You could see all the lads in the background going, oh, Jesus, he's not giving the love speeches. He fuck it, it's five minutes <laughs> to lunch. <laughs> Today's fried chicken and all. It'll be gone all soggy by the time I get in. <laughs>
1: Yeah, it's just everything about it was like, yeah, 60s Alex Jones.
2: And there was nothing subtle about it, you've all the kind of superimposed images of flaming torches in the background, and it was all the fascistic, uh, even the the, the cult's insignia or symbol was very much like the Iron Eagle from... Uh, yeah. The SS are an eagle. So nothing subtle about it. It's all yeah. these guys are the devil. A very pro-communist movie, by the way. Very yep. pro-communist. U- ultimately, the communists are the one who have the upper hand all the way through this. Ultimately, they're the ones who file the plot. I think yep. I made this point to you in in again going to our fourth ball, ra- our fourth wall-breaking uh, segment here. When I was texting mm-hmm. you, kind of going, it's kind of it's the same thing in common with India with the Raiders of the Lost Ark, in that you could take Harrison, Indiana Jones out of that movie, and the ending would still be the same. This is you know a standing. Yes. Theory that you know, ultimately Balak would have found the 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 Ark would have opened yes. it, and everybody would have had a melty face. Yeah, and that would have been it. <laughs> right.
1: where, where, right. where, where, where it did, right?
2: But whereas, like the only thing there is, like again, and Norton, Marion Ravenscroft's character would probably have been killed off, and that would have been terrible because that means she would have been able to make an appearance in the wonderful fourth movie, "The Kingdom of the Fucking Crystal Skull." <laughs> yeah. <laughs> anyway, back to back to my. Yeah, back question. to being so another ring. You could take Harry Palmer out of this movie and the ending still would have been the same. The Russians yes. still would have foiled the plot. Um and the same people would have ended up dying in it. It's it's bizarre. He like you say, it's kind of Harry meanders from scene to scene, doesn't really contribute much to anything, reacts to stuff, and gets knocked unconscious. That's really it. Get a concussion, uh, try to get off with uh Carl Malden's missus um mm. and get a pay rise.
1: Basically, yeah. And I mean he... Yeah, and also he's he he once again is adjacent to death rather than actually killing anyone. But yeah, I mean, I, the body count in this is massive. Like it's by far and away the biggest body count of any of the Palmer movies.
2: Yeah, I mean, I don't want to sound bloodthirsty, but you expect the spy will actually kill somebody at some stage. Yeah. Even when he's driving the car, or when he's you know he's, there's a couple of car chases in this. Really, even if he you know ran over a pedestrian by accident, you kind of go, well at least you can mark one up to Harry there. But there's not even <laughs> yeah. that.
1: No, I mean an entire army gets annihilated at the end, and he's nothing to do with it. Absolutely nothing to do. He wakes up in a bath of bodies, nothing to do with it. I mean, nothing. He, he's just—he's—he's he's right beside mass murder that's going on, but he doesn't actually kill anybody. Which is, you know, I like you say, you'd expect a spy would take someone out with, I don't know, a drop of poison into a martini or something. Anyway, just to sort of, you know, earn his corn, as it were. No, nothing nothing like that, no. Nothing, nothing at all. I think they should have had more Colonel Ross as well. Colonel Ross being his his boss from MI5. I mean, the opening scene that we mentioned in in the film noir style office and Ross is there trying to get him to come back to MI5 and and, and do a bit of work. To me, it's by far and away the best scene in the film. Uh, and I I miss Ross. I, he's he's probably my favorite character over the whole three films.
2: Oh, he's a pro- he's a proper prick. I mean the whole I mean you've <laughs> that opening scene where he tries to uh, tempt Harry back to MI five with a pay rise, and when that doesn't work, he basically uh, blackmails Harry into joining MI five again because he's been found in the company of a dead body and would be quite happy to pin the murder on him if he doesn't rejoin.
1: Yeah, yeah, but he's he's a great character. He's just a great character. And I mean, ultimately, at the end of it all, I mean, you talk about you know. The, the the anti-bond yet again it seems to be a thing with the Palmer movies he gets screwed at the end as well so he loses the girl that he got by the way in typical Palmer style after about 15 seconds of the movie. Well oh, they're lobbing lob the gob on the ferry
2: like just meet your one your one takes him the ferry over to, to meet Carl Malden, and within within seconds she, you know, they're lobbing the gob at each other. Your one is a bit unhinged in this movie as well I'm Jeez. not quite sure what the story, what the story with, with her character is I mean she's she's uh having an affair with 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 uh Carol Malden's character, but she's also a Russian double agent and at yeah. one stage Carl Malden is asked by this supercomputer to uh assassinate her because she's in a Russian uniform and yet everyone's surprised when she's revealed to be a Russian agent at the end of the movie like Harry's like oh I didn't see that coming oh you know back the- see that the- what big shock and she then also tries to uh the one chance that Harry Palmer actually has of a get, a getting his end away in this is spoiled by the fact that she tries to kill him using acupuncture.
1: That's right. <laughs> Explain.
2: A, again, we don't want to go on too much about this because it seems like we're kind of obsessed by matter, matters of the boudoir and sexuality. But There's basically there's a, there's a scene in this movie where, where McCain's Harry Palmer is 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 in the I guess the early throes of foreplay. Mm-hmm. and uh, starts off again with the kissing what's going on with the kissing he's kissing her eyes he starts <laughs> kissing her kissing her eyes that's fucking ken russell i guarantee is michael michael kiss the what kiss the eyes the eyes of the window <laughs> to the soul it's a thing kiss them <laughs> kiss the eyes away ev- eventually finds you know like the organ in question the mouth i'm a traditionalist at heart but you know but that there's a way your one then starts uh, lift up your shirt and you're kind of going Obviously, okay. you know nature taking this course. Starts to perform the very mildest type of shiatsu massage in his lower back mm-hmm. until he figure out that she's looking for a key pressure point. Reaches in under the mattress, uh, dislodges a copy of Razzle, uh, <laughs> takes out this ni- this this knitting needle and is about to kind of stab uh, Harry in the small of his back uh, mm-hmm. before he catches her. And then one of the most not well. A discombobulating scene. Harry drags her and locks her into her room, but it takes oh, yeah. about three fucking minutes for him to do it's it because tropper. Ken Russell's doing his proper shaky camera. What's going
1: on here before he locks her into her room? And she's really, and it's not, This this is not stone doubles. Like this is, they're, they're dragging each other around. Like it's a, uh, it's rough, it's rough, rough stuff again. It's all, it's authentic. This, like I just want to bring back to her as well. There's also a bizarre scene, like this, uh,
2: again, a very 60s scene where after that sauna that wasn't the sauna, the, uh, Harry, Carl Malden's character. I'm not going to. Uh, is it Mike?
1: It doesn't matter.
2: It, really,
1: it doesn't
2: Karl matter. Carl Malden, and your one are back. Are back in the gaff. You know, relaxing after the sauna. Harry is has disappeared in one of those bizarre kind of bubble chairs, uh, mm-hmm. smoking a smoking a fag. Your one is playing the cello really badly. That's right. It's a kind that's of atonal true. cello that's going on in the background while they discuss while they discuss their plans.
1: Yeah, it's it's it goes, Why is this goes, here? echoes of Woody Allen and Take the Money and Run you know just kind of a little creaking bit. at this cello uh, well at least she was playing it authentic
2: I, I see again this is the other theme you've got a, a between, I hate to bring us back to Hurry Sunday but you've got, you've got you've got the south you've got the deep south with uh, with Colonel Sanders and the mm-hmm. fucking the Falkhorn Leghorn cult you've yeah. got uh, you've got bad 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 sex and you've got bad music
1: you do, you do, it's 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 a move away from Horry Sundown, but we're not clear of it yet, we're not clear of it, I wonder is that more down to us, are we seeing that? No, we're not, it actually exists in the movie, bad cello, bad sex, bad southern accents, yeah, no, you're right, you're right, like, the, the one thing I'd say about it, you know, and we're, we're talking about it, it is, it's, it, I, I asked myself would I watch this movie again and I don't think if it came up on TV I probably wouldn't but that's not to say it's rubbish like I mean I did get the kind of there is a nice kind of under undercurrent of kind of chaos and sort of the sense that kind of that things could go completely arseways here and the world could explode at all times which is good like, that's Ken Russell that's good but I mean it's sort of yeah it kind of from a Ken point of view it's just meandering along and it's trying to get out the other side um, safely, really, isn't it? Is that is that what we're saying? I think I think so. Like
2: it's two other things. I'd like, to, I'd like to cover. For, mm. uh, first of all, is Colonel Stock the return of Colonel Stock?
1: Oh so yes. Ah, oh, 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 English.
2: The the laughing Russian. Uh, yeah. So this is pretty much. I, I mean, this is this. You could look at this as the third in the Harry Potter and uh, the Harry Potter, the third in the Harry <laughs> Potter trilogy, or the second in the Colonel Stock duology. Because yes. basically in Funeral in Berlin, Colonel Stock is the guy who gets his way, um, out outmaneuvers MI5 and outmaneuvers Harry Palmer. And this movie, he's exactly the same. He's, he's in control the whole time. He's the one who follows the plot ultimately. He's the one whose agent is in place well before, well before things get going. So as I said, Palmer completely superfluous to this. Colonel Stock is the one. Like that's, again, what the fuck? Like the scene where Colonel Stock visits visits Harry in he, in his hotel room, and Colonel Stock comes in wearing a uh, a butler's tuxedo, apparently Sorry. a butler's tuxedo, a tuxedo, but apparently it's 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 that fancy hotel that the the staff wear tuxedos. Comes in, proceeds to disrobe because he's gone in there in disguise because he doesn't want Russian intelligence to know he's in there. Proceeds to disrobe, um, yes. while talking, and then reveals that he's a full he's full general's outfit in under the cloche on the uh, <laughs> the. the, the he, uh the on the, the, the room service trolley and just gets slowly dressed and then disappears out the fucking fire you kind of go could you not just climb up the fire escape in the first fucking place rather than go through this farce.
1: Did you have to undress in front of Kane, who actually gets out of the bed. We mentioned in the previous episode I think that we haven't seen Kane's legs yet. We didn't see Kane's legs in this either because he was wearing a rather fetching set of long johns. We can only um, assume he has them. Like c we're just guessing at this stage that he is limbed. Um, But look, yeah, very strange, very strange. Just want to finish off that point. I was like, like, he does get screwed in every which way. Like, I mean, he loses the girl, right? His small business goes to the wall. He ends up back at MI5 by the end and he's on crap money. So like, at least that much of Palmer was kept, you know, that it all ends in a heap.
2: Yeah. Just back to your one as well. Her last line to him, again, just going to show how fucking nuts she is. uh, Goodbye, Harry. We we would have made nice babies together. It's like, you didn't even get the chance, the first chance yeah. you got to make babies and then we tried to fucking kill him. That's not how babies are made. <laughs> there's something fundamentally wrong in communist Russia's fucking family planning or sexual uh, health fucking education system, it's like, you know, no, you know, first of all, he kisses your eyes, then he kisses your mouth, then you embed <laughs> a knitting needle in the small of his fucking back. Next thing you know, you're pregnant.
1: Apparently that's the way they did it in communist Russia. I don't know, that's all I could learn from it.
2: I suppose they are, they are tougher than us.
1: They are much tougher. In in fairness, it should be it should be remarked that the that the woman in question was Françoise Deloriac, who was Catherine Deneuve's sister. So her last film role, she was killed in a car crash. I don't know, five or six weeks after Billion Dollar Brain finished up, or maybe when Billion Dollar Brain came out. I'm not sure, but um, yeah, yeah, that was it. she was she was on the verge of becoming a big star. And I pers- I guess again, Yeah, yeah, yeah. was she though? I don't know. Well, she, I mean, I was looking. I am just she looking. at on the verge of getting more acting roles. I don't know,
2: but on the verge of being a big star. If what? this is, if this is any, I mean, obviously tragic death, but at the same time, not very good actress in this.
1: Yeah, yeah, it wasn't 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 a great performance from her to be fair.
0: This is the Russian Harry Palmer met in Berlin.
1: English,
0: <laughs> I'm good to see you. <laughs> it's the first time I've ever had a Russian spy on room service. <laughs> the brain versus Kane. Michael Kane. My brain says the hour is at hand, and my brain is never wrong. I love my country, and my dream is to make the thing I love strong.
1: Strong! 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 I know one of the other things that really caught your eye, because you're a fan of a good invasion.
2: Oh, absolutely, um, you know, invasions are my top three things. Uh, or if it's overthrowing a government, if it's uh, viruses attacking my ner- my my my, uh, my nervous system, anything yes. like that, I you I'll go that. good invasion.
1: Yeah, you love that stuff. What What did you make of this invasion? The invasion of Latvia that happens, <laughs> the invasion of Latvia. You know, I, I'm not going to say anymore. I don't need to say anymore.
2: Right. So uh, the the cultists are are all getting into. Finland via um, Falkar Nenghard's uh, oil tankers. So they're loading them up. They're bringing all the troops into into Latvia that way, yes? That's my the, understanding.
1: The the troops, by the way, who are all dressed, for some reason, with their helmets on, like sperm.
2: They all look like sperm, or like Mike TV uh, or, uh, in uh, Willy Wonka's chocolate factory. Uh, yeah, just before he's dissolved. Just before he's dissolved. So if the seed of... Uh, We'll generously say hundreds of cast uh, of of, yes. of cast members or extras um, gathering in a courtyard while uh, Ed Begley does his best Patton uh, by you know addressing them from a the balcony and telling them to go give uh, the Reds what for. And you just yes. go. These all all these guys look like sperms.
1: Yeah, they're sperma.
2: And now Obviously, the key thing is they get they all, they all get their dressed to the nines as sperms. With their weapons, with their with their with their missiles, they arrive on on, on site, and then decide, Do you know what? Now is the time for discretion. Let's all hide hide, hide in these tooled up oil tankers.
1: Yeah, in these big, huge, white, tooled up oil tankers. Before we disgorge ourselves from these oil tankers when we reach Russia.
2: Now it's very important because it, they are uh, the ejaculated
1: from the back of the trucks, as it were.
2: Basically, as it was, and a premature one, as as, as it, as it uh, turns out. But. Mm-hmm. Obviously, the key th- the key thing to any invasion, I know you'll back me up with this, is that if you have any force, it's to really just concentrate them in one area. Yes. So if you have all these hundreds, so basically a very discreet convoy of white oil tankers, again driven by guys dressed as sperms, driving their way across uh, across what can only be the outskirts of Finland into Latvia. I don't know my geography; don't correct me. I'm right. Um, <laughs> and this is this is part of the invasion. Then they are attacked by Russian planes. Now Russians are very clever. They bomb the ice because the lads are driving on ice again, yes. all in a straight line. Mm-hmm. They get bombed. They get bombed by the Russians. Russians break the ice, and all the lads drown. Um, yep. And obviously, because of budgetary constraints, it's just the same lads drowning over and over again, shot from different angles.
1: But of course, we have the we have the horror of war with guys hanging on to bits of ice and other fellas pushing them off, and then they fall in, and everybody gets to die in the end of it all. But Harry, of course, is driving like a little red car. He's fine.
2: Yeah, he's fine. He just gets away I guess scot scot free from that one. But again this a uh, dreadful scene, obviously, again he mourns the death of his close friend who's double crossed him, Carl Malden, who gets shot in the head. Um mm-hmm. again kinda of dusts himself off from that one is, and is okay with that as well.
1: Yeah, yeah. Very he got he's got a hell of a mental attitude towards this kind of stuff, I have to say. Even even for 1967, like, he's he's brushing stuff off left, right and centre, you know. I cannot but feel he's suppressing trauma
2: that may come back to him in a later, uh, later stage in life and manifest itself in many unfortunate neurological ways.
1: <laughs> we can only hope we see someone that in the made-for-TV movies in the 90s. Which I'm sure we we'll will, just an nor An a half of Harry Palmer just talking
2: about all the all the stuff that happened to him in the sixties and you know just the trauma he felt over the death of his close friend uh, madden how he's never been able to hold down a steady job since, how he's had trouble with relationships. Mm-hmm.
1: I, I watched that. Harry Palmer on the couch. Yeah, all right. Okay, we can do yep. that. So, do we have anything else to say? Will we? Will we move to the marks for Kane or marks out of Kane? What do we? I'm still not sure. Is it the marks for Kane or marks out of Kane? Does it matter?
2: marks out of Marx out of Kane. Yeah. What are you giving it? Uh, I would give this a generous five.
1: I think, uh, yes, I was going to actually nearly, nearly reach for a six because there are nice images in it. Like there are lovely, there are lovely shots and things like that in it. But if we're talking about, and Kane is just cruising. So yeah, I I, I would agree with probably six, maybe five. Five is probably more realistic. All right. So that is, that was billion dollar brain. And that's the end of Harry Palmer. As you said, we don't see Harry Palmer again for a long time. Now, for a change of pace, we decided we're going to double up in this episode. So we've done Billion Dollar Brain. He did one more film in 1967. It was a very short cameo appearance in a film called Woman Times Seven, which was essentially a Shirley MacLaine vehicle. She plays, she plays a woman in, in seven different sort of short stories, and they're all around love and relationships and, and so on and so forth. As I say, it's, it's a real vehicle for Shirley MacLaine. Um, Kane appears in the final episode, and he's essentially, when it begins, he is presented basically as a stalker. Yes. I mean, this is
2: a, this is a, a when you say vehicle for Charlie sure if it was a vehicle, it'd be like one of those fucking electric unicycles that just annoy the balls off you and, for, and actually for no actual fucking
1: purpose. Oh, it's dire stuff. It's, it's real. It's, like it's, it's shit. real. I'm making a movie for my mate. Like, you know, yeah. it's just, ugh, it's, it's bad stuff. Go on anyway.
2: So yeah, this is the last vignette as such in it, and uh, Shirley McLean and Anita Ekberg are play two dolls strolling along the Champs Elysees, um, being uh, being stalked by a bumbling uh, Michael Caine, and this is essentially (laughs) it. Uh, And as most things, uh, 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 as transpires in life, I think you'll find, obviously, there seems to be sort of free of attraction between uh, Shirley McLean's character and Michael Caine. I think it's actually pity. That then turns to love within the ten minutes of this segment. Yeah. Uh she's stalked by him, finds him somewhat intriguing. He does some of the worst mugging I've ever seen, and I, I, I don't mean stealing stealing somebody's belongings. I mean just hamming it up for the yeah. camera, trying to do. He's it's a, it's a it's a non-speaking part. Yeah. Uh so it's he does all this terrible sub Charlie Chaplin uh, silent movie mugging for the camera it's, that is just just it's one of these it's uh, one of these
1: things that he goes back to later in his career when he's telling people how to act that you know. The, the use of your face can say much more than even words and it's all of this like he's raising eyebrows and he's smirking. And it's,
2: and he's right, what this says is, yeah, what this says is, is that I what I love about Paris is that the working uh, working hours in France are much better than England I get to lie in for longer so I can endure a, a longer hangover,
1: basically yeah. you start at 10,
2: start at 10 and finish at 7 and because he had a, non, a non-speaking role he got an extra lie in in the morning, this is what yeah. his face says, I'm having a great fucking time this is, i doing fuck all here but at the same time like with most like with most of my roles i'm taking what i do very very seriously afterwards
1: yeah it's yeah, exactly. <laughs> very true yeah suddenly it assumes an importance like so i mean the weird things for me in this little thing was i mean maybe it's just looking back 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 from now to then like it rather than stopping a gendarme at any point and going um there's been a man following me and they say this for an hour um they kind of go oh he must be hungry. I think that he must be hungry. Is he poor? He's quite intriguing. Hmm. They go into a cafe. They stop. They watch him. They go out. Now, we're going to split in opposite directions. Let's see who he follows. And Shirley MacLaine, of course, as you say, it's about it's about relationships and adultery and, and so, so on. And she's made the point that she's married and she's never been attracted to another man. But suddenly, she's attracted to this, frankly, weird bald stalker who gets who then gets onto a tram with her and basically bumps up against her. Kind of does a bit of sort of, you know... Lad you, don't need to, lad, you don't need to be that close. Like you can back up a small bit, but she's happy out with this, which is again a bit bizarre. She goes in, she tries to um not be noticed by staring into the uh, staring into the front window of a power tool shop. Ends up buying a power tool. Um, goes home. Husband is home. She looks out the window. Of course, Cain is wandering on in snowy Paris. Of course, it's somehow snowed during this whole thing, and um, she's intrigued by this gentleman. And of course, it turns out that he's actually a private investigator hired by the husband to follow her around, and that's why he was following her around. Ta da!
2: Yeah, what Uh, what was the fucking point of this? I mean, just uh, yeah, it's like somebody somebody spunked this off of the fucking uh, writer's room. You know, five minutes before quitting time. Very very bizarre. No, I'm quite happy with spunk. No, no that's fine no. <laughs> no, no,
1: I wasn't going to stop you. sorry
2: yeah but I, I got, tried to interject that but there is that kind of bizarre frottage scene in the in the in the uh, in the in the train where you're kind of going is he rubbing himself off or like yeah
1: it, yeah. it, doesn't, yeah. It's, it really is uh, sorry there back up like you know it's not like yeah. we're complete, it is busy but it's not that freaking busy you know do take a ticket for that yeah. <laughs> yeah it's 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 not good like it's again it's, it's not good and the point is that the husband is he
2: says he's a jealous man but now that he's had uh, a private investigator t- her uh, and report that her movements match the story that he's told her that yeah. he's he, he, he can't believe he's such a fool blah, blah. like i'd be more worried for, worried for him is that it's a real kind of act of shade you know giving your your husband a massive tool you know like this is what you're missing in your life it's a real emasculating move so hats off to shirley in that one like yeah, yeah. And then, he, sure. then it ends with him promising to drill a lot of holes in the apartment. That again, I don't know if that's supposed to be subtext, text, text, super text, meta text. I, think,
1: I don't know. I think I th- I think you're probably we're we're probably reading too much into something we that really doesn't exist. I mean, this is a pure. I mean, we talk about a McLean vehicle. I mean, in the other episodes of it, Peter Sellers appears, a young Alan Arkin, and Robert Morley. We mentioned uh, Anita Ekberg there as well. Like so, like, and it's another classic case of Kane. Picking somebody who has a fantastic reputation. And it's just something, I guess it's the kind of thing that, you know, three years ago, he wouldn't have got the opportunity to work with Vittorio De Sica and Shirley MacLaine in a movie. I'll do that. And as you say, I'll get the lie on and it's Paris and it's nice and it's blah, blah, blah. But this, the, 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 the trend is starting to develop already now of picking projects with people that look good on paper but turn out to be absolute muck in reality.
2: Yeah, that doing your homework, just doing it, just doing it at face value.
1: Just doing it. By the way, one last thing. Lord Lucan, famous Lord Lucan, who disappeared, uh, however, 14, 15 years later, he auditioned for a part in this film. Obviously didn't get it. Uh, but there you go. There's a piece of useless information. Do we even offer... If I was doing a Mark of Cain for this, I'd be saying two. Oh, Jesus.
2: Yeah, two. A generous two. Uh, a generous uh, two, yeah. Hands up. I didn't watch any of the other vignettes in this. I don't I don't recommend anybody else does. With You know... Go out and embrace nature. Tell yeah. somebody you love them. I don't know. Find you know find better things to do with your time.
1: Uh, one thing I, was, I
2: forgot to mention is just to, just to say again go back to Kane and the way he picked projects is that he was savvy enough after well I say savvy, Ken Russell <laughs> offered him offered him a role in Women in Love, but Kane refused on the basis that he wasn't going to do any nude wrestling. So again, you've you, Kane's bizarre standards. You know, like you know. I will take this movie. I will not read the script. I will go film it in, in Antigua because Antigua is a lovely country. I will enjoy my food. I will make an absolute steaming tour of a movie, but at least I'll be comfortable. But I won't star in a movie that will will go down in the history of a film of being one of the a great movie. Women of Love is a great movie. It is one of Ken Russell's best movies, that and The Devils, yeah. Yeah. fantastic yeah. movie. But I will turn it down because again, I don't want to be getting me off with another with another bloke.
1: Yeah, it comes back yet again to the de question. We cannot get away from the de question in the sixties with Michael Caine. But you know what? I am glad, I am glad that we are leaving nineteen sixty-seven now. In nineteen sixty-seven, he made Woman Time Seven, Billion Dollar Brain, and Horry Sundown. Now I would I've said I would not say that Billion Dollar Brain is a complete turkey of a film, far from it. But I would, would definitely say that those three films to another actor would burn down a career. Yeah. but it does not happen to this man.
2: No, uh, Kane reckons it's it's five to one. That's the ratio. If you get the five clunkers, then you're done. So he reckons he's closest he ever got is four and a half.
1: Yeah, and nobody comes as
2: the half. But a, a year of movies like that would kill another actor's career these days. Now, yeah, he's a he's a very lucky boy.
1: No, he is getting. I tell you, it must be the Alfie effect. It must be the Alfie effect still in effect. Um, so moving into 1968, and next time round our next movie is Deadfall he's a cat burglar following up on Gambit similar role again you've noticed a little trend I think in this have you with cat burglars and Kane
2: he plays a lot of cat burglars a lot of authors a lot of playwrights a lot of spies mm-hmm.
1: yeah yeah well he's going to take a break from the spying for a little bit now so we will tell you all again thank you for listening first of all secondly go find Deadfall online it's out there Uh, and we will come back here again next time round to talk about Michael Caine in Deadfall. Stephen, thank you very much. Thank you, Michael. We'll talk again soon. What
0: are you waiting for? Come
2: on. Come on. That's it for this week's episode. Thanks for listening. Make sure to like and subscribe, and uh, maybe leave a comment. Only nice ones though, mean comments will make Alfie cry and no one wants to see that. The Marco Cain podcast is written, researched and presented by Stephen Black and Michael Foley and edited by Andrew Foley. Music is composed by Stephen Black. If you'd like to get in touch, you'll find us on Twitter at, at MaloNews and at Marco Cain Two. And if you enjoyed this episode, you'll find all the rest wherever you get your podcasts. Marco Cain is a MaloNews two Cubes production. See you next time.